so we're continuing in the book of Isaiah. We, uh, we've come to about the timeline where Isaiah appeared on the scene um, in Ahaz's. If you, if you look on the back of your, the very back of the very long packet that I gave you this time, um, Isaiah comes onto the scene in the year that King Uzziah died. At least that's roughly the time that he pops up on the scene according to Isaiah chapter 6. And, um, and his ministry extends all the way into Hezekiah's ministry. But as we're going to see tonight, his ministry continues even uh, into 100 some odd years after his death, and then honestly really continues into the New Testament. Isaiah, look, th- so there's, there's a couple of different ways that you can think about quotations, citations from the New Testament authors to the Old Testament when they cite an Old Testament work. There's times where they quote, literally, an Old Testament work. And you know, and Matthew will tell you, and this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, da-da-da-da-da, and he quotes him. And you can kind of see that in there and all that. Then there's a million other times where they loosely reference or they borrow words. Like, for instance, you've all, you all remember Paul saying, put on the armor of God, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Every last one of those is in Isaiah, right? And he doesn't tell you that, and you wouldn't even really know that uh, if you didn't know it, right? All of those come from Isaiah. They're, they're, they're armor that's worn by the Messiah. So what Paul is actually saying is not just figure out what your salvation is and wrap it around your waist. He's saying put on Christ as you go about your day. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Wear Christ as you go. You think, I want the attitude of Christ as I walk away. So, that's an example, but quotations from Isaiah are all over, but then veiled references to Isaiah are nearly on every page in the New Testament to some degree. So, Isaiah is really influential in the New Testament, and for my money, you really are going to have a hard time understanding the Gospels, understanding Revelation, understanding a a whole host of books in the New Testament and what the New Testament authors are doing if you don't understand Isaiah and you don't understand Old Testament poetry, which we all study, right, all the time. We continually read books on Old Testament poetry, don't you? You have tons of Old Testament poems memorized, I'm sure. Um, They're difficult. They're hard to understand and can be really challenging. And so, it's important then to understand the orientation of Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets for that matter, but particularly Isaiah because it, it helps, I think, a lot. We remember that last week we talked about Isaiah where he turns and he begins to criticize Israel's leaders um, because they have found common cause with all these foreign nations. They've gone down to Egypt for help. They've sought everybody for help. And it's not necessarily a terrible thing to have allies, right? We, I mean, we, we're allies with England, right? We, and that's a good thing. We see that as a, a pretty good thing, or we should. We have trade agreements with various nations that might be a good thing for our country. It's not, it's not necessarily terrible to build some sort of alliance. What The problem with Israel is they're going to these foreign nations for protection. They want help. They're hedging their bets. The Lord has told them, I'm going to protect you, and they don't believe it. So they are going down to foreign nations for extra protection. They're paying uh, nations out of the treasury, out of the money that they've got, that God has given them. They're paying the nations for help. 
and for security. And the Lord, Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah turns to criticize them for doing that. And the only thing that's going to help them escape God's judgment now, because God is going to judge them precisely because they're turning away from Him and turning to others, the only thing that can rescue from that is repentance. They have to confess their sin. They have to turn from it and repent. So then we get into chapters 28 to 35 where Isaiah gives this um, these series of, of poems on precisely the reason why uh, Israel is going to be punished. And after those poems, he comes out on the backside where he talks to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a living, breathing illustration of all of those poems. So you've been ju- you're going to be judged because you've gone to other nations for help and support. You're going to be judged because you don't trust the Lord. Well, then we get Hezekiah in 36 to 39, where the Lord spares his life twice. I mean, literally spares his life twice. In a way that only God could do, spares his life. And what does he do? He turns to Babylon for help. He, they come in, he shows them all the temple treasuries. Look how much we've got. They send him a gift. They're building a good buddy-buddy alliance here, and they're doing that so that Hezekiah is not destroyed by any kind of army. And Isaiah comes in and says, the very nation that you've built your support with is going to come in and invade this place. You've basically just given them license to come in and do this, and they're going to do it. And so Hezekiah's story closes in chapter 39 with his hosting this delegation where he shows them all the riches that he's got in the temple treasury. And, um, and at the very end of it, Isaiah tells him this, and he says, well... If it's going to come about, if my kids are going to be hauled off into captivity, at least there's going to be peace in my day. All right. Well, there you have it. So, chapter 39 closes. And now we've got a little bit of an issue. We briefly touched on it last week, and we're going to deal a little bit more with it this week. Um, We get into the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, and um, it's entirely different. The first part of Isaiah is almost entirely historical in the sense that it's uh, this event followed by this event followed by proclamation of judgment on this particular nation and so on and so forth. But when you get to chapters 40 to 66, it changes to where it becomes really predictive. Isaiah is looking into the future and he's talking about what rescue will look like on the after Babylon. Now, We haven't even talked about Babylon yet. We haven't even talked about the southern kingdom being hauled off into Babylon. So if you're sitting there going, I don't know anything about Babylonian captivity, that's fine. The northern kingdom, you'll remember, in 722 was hauled off into captivity by Assyria. The southern kingdom isn't going to be hauled off into captivity to Babylon until it's going to finish in 586. So we're still a hundred plus years away from Babylonian captivity, all right? So we don't know anything about it yet. And Isaiah is looking into the future, and he's talking about what life on the other side of captivity is actually going to look like. So not just a hundred years from Isaiah, but 150 or so years from Isaiah, he's looking into the future. So way out. Isaiah's ministry is much bigger and much longer than really any Old Testament prophet. And so 
he's, the, this section from 4066 transitions to him looking on the other side of captivity. Now, you can imagine when an author, a prophet, begins looking that far into the future, there's some in today's day and age that start to question whether or not that's actually Isaiah writing this. You can probably imagine this. Can a guy really look into the future and see, and God show him that this person's going to come in and that by his stripes we will be healed, that he's going to be nailed upon a cross? Can a person really look that far? Can God really show them this and they be able to predict that far in the future? So there's lots of people that, that speculate that someone other than Isaiah contributed to chapters 40 to 66 and put together large pieces of it. And, um, but what's interesting is that many of the Christian writers, obviously, in the New Testament, attribute the book to Isaiah, including all of these parts in 40 to 66 as well. Um, and so, I, 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 I mean, I, I think it at least bears some reading. So, John 1, 23 he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet, who is that? Isaiah said. Well, that verse that he quotes is from chapter 40. It's right out of the gate in chapter 40. And so he seems to make clear that Isaiah said it. Uh, so there's that. Uh, it's several other passages, I've got them all listed there, that go on to say virtually the same thing and attribute those quotations to Isaiah. So there's little doubt that the New Testament attributes at least the vast majority of chapters 40 to 66 to Isaiah. It is possible that there has been some light touching of chapters 40 to 66 by some of Isaiah's disciples. And the reason that this is possible is because the book of Isaiah tells you that's going to happen, or at least alludes to some of that happening. So look at uh, Isaiah 8.16. Uh, as soon as I can find it. Oh, I turned way too far. Here it is. Isaiah 8.16, bind up the testimony. That is Isaiah's prophecy. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. So here we have an example of what is commanded by Isaiah to do with his prophecies, to bind them up and to give them to his disciples. So we know that these manuscripts of his prophecies are going to live longer than Isaiah. That's pretty clear, right? He's going to do this. And we also know that Isaiah is on the whole rejected by a lot of the kings that he goes to. So there's reason to believe that because of his rejection, he still records the prophecies just as he had spoken them and then hands them off to his disciples, right? And they, they live on beyond him, okay? So then look at Isaiah 29, 10 to 12, and 30, 8 to 9. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, and he says, I cannot read. He, he's telling them, you guys have are blind, and God has blinded you. He has essentially taken away your prophets. He's uh, given you no voice or anything like that because, uh, well, you refuse to repent. You refuse to see. 
Remember the section that this is in. This is in that section where Isaiah talks about all the judgment that's coming upon them. And so he tells them, and he's taking them away. And then look at 30, 8 to 9, which follows on the heels of that. He says, And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. And so what is Isaiah being told to do, but to take a lot of his prophecies, including 40 to 66? all the book, really, and seal them all up and give them to his disciples that they may be for a later generation who might hear. They might read and hear. And he's actually in 40 to 66 going to prophesy about that group in the future that's going to see and hear. And so we're going to see in just a second why we may have some evidence that in 4066 there is some additions by his disciples in amongst these prophecies of Isaiah. Um, among the instruments that the Lord's going to use in his future is going to be Cyrus, the king. So again, this is consider this a preview of Babylonian captivity. But the southern kingdom is going to be hauled off into Babylonian captivity, and they're going to stay there for about 70 or so years. And all of a sudden on the horizon, there is a, another ruler coming in, and he's going to do some damage to Babylon, and he's going to conquer them, and his name is Cyrus. And what is unusual about Isaiah 40 to 66 is that the name Cyrus is recorded. That's unusual in any prophecy, that the name would be there. Even prophecies about Jesus, Isaiah 53, things like that, you notice it doesn't give the name Jesus. It, it gives other descriptions. You will call his name Emmanuel earlier on in Isaiah. It doesn't say Jesus. It, it gives other euphemisms for him who we, we know is, is coming. So it's, it would be pretty rare in biblical prophecy for a prophet to record the name of the individual coming forward, though also not impossible. So it's not necessarily impossible that Isaiah wrote 40 to 66, all, all of it, word for word, but it's probable, more probable, that he wrote the vast majority of it, almost all of it, and his disciples put in a few little additions here and there um, along the way. Okay, that's all the introductory stuff, all right? So let's move past that. Let's get into the content, the nitty-gritty, all right? Uh, chapter 40 to 40, uh, chapters 40 to 48. So uh, chapter 40 opens up, and really pretty quickly, we're going to get into this uh, big trial that's coming. But first... Um, it's pretty clear from the get-go, as we saw last week, that the purpose of 40 to 66 is to bring comfort to the children of Israel. They've just been into captivity, they've been there for quite some time, and it, it's clear that Isaiah wants to say, but just wait, there's hope on the horizon, right? And we see that even in chapter, uh, chapters 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 1, um, which we also read last week, but it bears repeating this week. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. That's how chapter 40 opens up. So you kind of know the theme going in. But there is a, a problem in that if you've been in captivity for some time, and you've been there because the Lord sent you, you tend to be less trusting of the Lord. Some people do. Now, here's what we know from Scripture. Time and again it's told to us that 
when suffering comes upon an individual, for those who are the Lord's children, it draws them closer to the Lord. For those who are not His children, it draws them further away. So you will encounter people who use things that have happened in their life as reasons why they don't trust God. And you will encounter other people who have, the, have similar references for reasons why they trust God. Have you ever noticed this? You've seen this time and again? The Bible tells you it's all over the place. Well, when you have a nation who's punished for idolatry that goes into captivity and there they suffer at the hand of the Babylonians, what is probably going to be the outcome on the whole? They're going to grow in rejection to the Lord, right? They're going to grow in hatred. And so we see that coming out in chapter 40, verse 27 uh, to 31. Look at this. Why do you say, O Jacob, this is God speaking, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths grow, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, that, that verse is on Bible covers, is on t-shirts, it's on bumper stickers, it's everywhere. Um, but what, what is he telling the people? Now, he's promising them comfort. Comfort, comfort. This is what's coming. It, on the horizon, there's good things coming. You're just, you're living in the shadow of captivity. If he's prophesying about a time to come when they will be released from captivity, or if he's prophesying just on the backside of captivity, whenever this is happening to them, they're still living in the shadow of captivity. It's within their memory. They know what captivity feels like. And he's telling them, comfort. And they're going, psh, comfort. I don't know about comfort. I don't trust that you're actually going to bring me comfort. And he says, wait upon the Lord. Those that wait, will, their strength will be renewed. All right, so just wait. That's his message to them. And they're having trouble believing him. And so what happens in 41 to chapter 48 is a trial begins. And you can see evidence of this trial um, that he brings up starting in, in 41, 21 to 24. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Now, it's, it's almost all the Lord speaking. Almost all of 41 to 48 is the Lord speaking. But... He's, he's setting up this trial for himself. You say this. And so he says, bring your evidence. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. You can hear the sarcasm. In his voice. He's being sarcastic to the people. Oh, you're, you have so much knowledge. Well, if you are gods, then tell us what happened before. Tell us the meaning of your captivity. Or, I'll tell you what, 
if you doubt that I'm going to be able to do any of the things that I'm promising, tell us what's going to come about in the future since you are gods, since you know, right? It's similar to the way he speaks to Job at the end of the book of Job, if you've read that. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he could have used kinder words, maybe. <laughs> um, so, so needless to say, God is setting forth this trial. And the Lord is telling them that, listen, you are my servant. Here's the reason why I'm going to do this. Because you are my servant. So, so this is really important to just fix in your brain for just a second. 41 to 48, he's establishing that Israel is his servant. Just, just pin that in there. Israel is God's servant. Fix that in my mind, because it's going to be really important in just a little bit. But look at 41, 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So he's telling them, you are my servant. And what then is their mission? What is the purpose of Israel? What was their function? What were they to be? Priest to the nations. So this, what Lynn just said was a priest to the nations. That's one term. Light to the nations is another term. It's all meaning the same thing. Basically, what Israel is supposed to be is a priesthood of God, a, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What that means is that they are to communicate who the Lord is to the nations around them. So if they're a city on a hill, which Jerusalem literally is a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, then their purpose with that big old honking temple right up there on top of that hill is to communicate who the Lord is to the rest of the nations. And if you want to follow the one true God, this is where you need to come. That's what they're supposed to be. But instead, they became a secluded people who walled off their garden to the rest of the nations. And instead of becoming a light to the nations, they became a nation of idolaters who began to worship other gods. And what they began to show to other nations is not that they were the priests to God, but that we are your servants. So the nations were influencing Israel. They started picking up the gods of other nations and worshiping them. You can see why this is a problem, right? If you're a city on a hill, you're supposed to be this light to the nations, and yet the nations are a light to you. Well, how's that helpful? That's not, right? They're not a, a priesthood. But they're supposed to be a light to the nations. Look at, look at this in 42, 1 and 9. Just helps you get a flavor of where he's going with this section. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom I sold in the lights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, we, we see that and we, we immediately think of Jesus. But, but before you go to Jesus, 
first go to Israel, all right? This is who he's supposed to be. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. This is specifically quoted in the New Testament about Jesus. Okay, but before we get to Jesus, let's focus on Israel. And faintly, uh, and, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So the idea of what Israel is to be is that those who are weak, those who are helpless, the bruised reed, as it were, he's supposed to not crush. All right, how easy is it to break a bruised reed? Well, it's, it's really easy, right? Because it's bruised. So he's supposed to be gentle with them and supposed to bring them in. So that this is part of the light to the nations, right? He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his, for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. He's telling Israel. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open up the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So he, he's telling them, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is who I'm going to make you to be, Israel. I'm going to make you to be this kind of light to the rest of the nations. You're going to be restored to this priesthood, so that you can actually accomplish the purpose that I have sent you to accomplish. All right? So, and he tells you, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you this beforehand, because that's the qualification for a God, as it were. Uh, is to tell you them beforehand. So, what he, the defense that then he gives in the midst of this trial that's going on, what Israel is accusing him of, of not wanting to, not actually saving them, of, of doing them harm, of hating them, of rejecting them, and he's going to give his defense. And the defense that he gives up for their punishment is, well, what I did to you is because of your sin. You failed to worship me. And so when you went to Babylon, let's not forget, that was punishment. Uh, you've, if you have kids, you've dealt with this, no doubt. We're, we're kind of in the prime of spanking territory. We're right in that little window. Um, I think we're coming on the backside of a little bit of it, but, you know, no pun intended. Um, but, but we're in, we're, we're kind of in prime, prime spanking territory. And what, what, what you notice with kids often is when you discipline them that way, or, or even when you discipline them a little bit harshly, they blame you for it, right? They turn it back on you and they're like, you're just mean to me, right? And, and you, you're, then you're having to tell them, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, am I on trial here? Am I the one that's going to sit on the witness stand? Hold on just a second. Let's talk about this. Didn't you just hit him right in the face? Didn't you just ball up your fist and sock him in the nose? Well, yeah, I did that. Well, then, how is it that you're not on the witness stand? How is it that you're not on trial here? Why are you putting the parent on trial? Israel's doing the same thing, and God's coming back to them, and he's going, wait, wait a second. You were the one that carved idols. You were the one that didn't worship me. How is Babylon my fault? 
Babylon is discipline. It's punishment for, for your sins against me. They, you fail to hear. You fail to heed warning after I told you repeated times. Look at Isaiah 42, 18 to 25. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plundered with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for for a time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. He poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. He said, I punished you and you still didn't listen. You're still as blind and deaf as you always were. And this is part of the problem with them. And then further he says, so he, so he says, first of all, Babylon was punishment for your sins. Second, if I'm going to offer a defense, I gave Cyrus for deliverance. I delivered you from the hand of the person who persecuted you. Not only did I send you there as punishment for your sins, but I didn't leave you there. I rescued you from it. You ever notice when, um, when, uh, tragedy happens, 9-11, uh, give the tragedy, you all know a bunch of them, that people ask, where is God? But when it rains on their garden, they don't say, there he is, right? Which one happens far more often? What, far more often it rains on the garden and causes the plants to grow, and yet there's never a turn at that moment and go, wow, God really showed up for me today. No. It's only in tragedy. Where is he? Well, here's Israel doing the same thing. Well, you sent us off to Babylon. Well, how should, why should we trust you? And he's like, wait a minute. Didn't I rescue you from Babylon? Yes, it did. But how is it that you don't go, praise the Lord, he rescued me? Apparently, it's just absence. All right. So he tells them once again that um, he's going to restore them. This, this is the, the heart of this little section this little promise, and it's kind of sprinkled throughout this section, but his promise that he gets to is, you know, in spite of all this, here's, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you, I'm going to restore you to what you were supposed to be. I'm going to make you again my servant. I'm going to make you again a light to the nations. I'm going to accomplish what I set out to accomplish. How it comes about is very strange, but he says it's going to happen. Look at 43, we won't read them all, but 43, 8 to 13. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Who, who is that? The ones who are blind, yet they do have eyes. Who are deaf, yet... So they haven't heard the Lord, they're not paying attention, but there is something there. They can perceive. He says, all the nations 
gathered together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses and prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no, was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And he goes on and says very similar things. But the promise is there. You are my witnesses, and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to restore you to the place that you were originally intended to be. But right now you can see they're obstinate, they're putting God on trial, they're hard-hearted, they're not hearing. That's all of 40 to 48. So then we get to 49, and something very strange happens. You can notice when you read 49 that the voice changes. It's, it's, the frame of reference is a little bit different. And what happens is this seemingly mysterious figure begins, begins speaking, and he's referring to himself as God's servant and as Israel. L listen to what I mean here in 49, 1-7. It's on page 5 of your packet. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. You see this? You, you hear that? It's not the Lord speaking, but it's someone else who's come onto the scene who's speaking. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Oh, I, I kind of re I remember that from the New Testament. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, and he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. So here's this mysterious figure who pops up on the scene, and what has the Lord called him? His servant, and he's also called him Israel. You notice that? The whole nation of Israel has now been replaced by this one singular, mysterious figure who has all of a sudden popped up on the scene, and he's telling you, I'm here. I am the servant, he's called me his servant, and he's called me Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Alright, you're getting whisperings of the New Testament. I know it's bouncing around your ears. It has to be at this point. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Oh, what is this servant going to do? He's going to be his servant and he's going to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might, uh, might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, listen to this, this is God talking to this servant, this Israel. This is what he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too easy. Let's make it a little harder. I will make you as a light for the that word nations is also the same word for Gentiles. 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It, look, this guy that I'm raising up, this servant that you're hearing speak in 49, to bring back Jacob and to restore Jacob, uh, that's too easy. I'm going to make it a little more challenging, and I'm going I'm to make him a light to the nations. He's actually going to be what Israel was supposed to be. That's why he's called Israel, because he's going to be what Israel was supposed to be. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, the, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. All right. And so what is this servant going to do then? Well, he says, so this servant who's coming along, who's not only going to restore Jacob, but he's also going to restore the nations and bring them into one. He's going to do this in a way that's very strange. He's actually going to be rejected, he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be killed as an atonement for the sins of my people. Not just for Jacob, but also for the rest of the world too. So, and then what mysteriously happens is that he lives to make intercession. This is a strange little passage, and I can only imagine that if you're living on that side of Jesus, that would be before Jesus, you're living in the B.C. days, and you're, li- you're reading Isaiah, I can only imagine that this passage would be very confusing to you, how this servant can die and then live to make intercession. Look at what he says in 54 to 9. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word he, him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This is still a servant speaking. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who, decla- who, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth, it will eat up. And he goes on to continue to describe the kind of torture and torment that, he will, that will happen in 52. Obviously, you know 52, 13, uh, through fifty three twelve, you know chapter fifty three. By his stripes we are healed, um, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But if you look at verses um, at the very end of that, uh, let's see fifty three ten to twelve. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So he's going to die, and he's going to bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He lives to make intercession. So there's this life, death, 
life that's coming. And what is the result? The result is that he, he takes the wrath of God and the wrath of God is satisfied. Look at 40, uh, uh, chapter 54, 9 to 12. He says, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go, go over the, the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. So here is this, this intercessor who comes to make intercession between God and Israel, who is the, the true servant, who is named Israel, who comes to stand in the place not only of Israel, but also of the rest of the world, who makes intercession by his death, who then satisfies the wrath of God in his death. Who is this one? Well, he goes on to say that what will happen as a result is that servants of this servant will come to the Lord in repentance and faith, and they'll forsake their sinful ways, and they will incline their ears to the teaching of the Lord. You notice what's been reversed. What was true earlier in the book of Isaiah is you are deaf, you're blind, you're rebellious, you're wicked, you're hard-hearted. You're supposed to be my chosen one, my light to the nations, and yet you're not. And so what has to happen? One who stands in your place, who is Israel incarnate, who will walk the path of Israel and yet do it without sin, who will stand in between not only Israel but all the rest of the world and the wrath of God, and who will absorb it who will raise from the dead and make intercession, and then will actually, through that, create a whole new people that will all be together, who will be restored as his servant, who will then be restored as a light to the nations. See this? This is what Isaiah is prophesying will happen. Hard to imagine someone believing in the Old Testament believing in Isaiah, and then missing it on the New Testament. <laughs> it's right there. It seems so obvious. And what he says is that the servants of this servant, the ones whose hearts have been changed, whose sins have been atoned for, who in other prophets he tells us, I'm going to put my spirit within them, and I'm going to change their heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and they're going to, I will be their God, they will be my people. They're going to, this is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. This is what's going to happen. That these people are going to be changed, and what's going to happen is that the servants of the servant are going to come forward in repentance they're going to hear, they're going to give themselves to the teaching of the, of the Lord. Look at John 6, 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal, or 737, on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink why does he say that? Because in Isaiah 55, verse 1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. What is, is going to happen? Well, he's going to create this community of people who are going to come streaming to the servant in worship. They're going to repent. They're going to buy food without money. Not physical food, mind you. 
They're going to buy the bread of life, but it's not going to take money to buy it. That means the poor are going to be able to come in and believe and, and stream to this servant who's going to stand in the gap between them and the wrath of God. What's going to happen then is that the people of God are not going to be made up merely of Jews, but of Gentiles. He says that in 49.6. He says, it is too light a thing, just a reminder, it is too light a thing that you should, my servant, raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation will reach the end of the earth. Now, the servant and all those who are servants of him are then going to fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham. Okay? Him becoming a light to the nations. The servants of him then becoming a light to the nations are fulfilling the promise that was made to Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 2-3. And I will make of you, this is God promising to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Acts 3, 22 to 26 comes back to this. Galatians 3, 8. Galatians 3, 13 to 14, he, they reiterate this, that all of this is not only fulfilled in Christ, but then fulfilled in the people that come from Christ, the community that Christ created. I want you to think about this. There, there's a big debate, whether you know it or not, I'm not asking you to know it, but there's a big debate within churches all across this world about Israel. What happens to Israel? And there are some merits to the debate, and, and I, I recognize that we could get into this all day long, and we're not going to. But here's what I will say. is It's very clear from Old and New Testament that what God has done in Christ is he has established him as Israel. The debate is, okay, well, on this side, one group of people say, well, the church is something completely different than Israel. They're, they're totally separate. And God dealt with Israel, and then he kind of paused Israel, and he comes to the church, he deals with the church, and the church has disappeared, and then he comes back to work with Israel. Problem with all of that is, Neither one of them are Israel. First, Israel neglected being Israel. Israel forsook being Israel. The Gentiles never knew what Israel was. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says. Without God, without hope, without anything, they were gone. Israel is Christ. It's abundantly clear that what God did was he established Christ as Israel. He's Israel. That's Israel. The only Israel that exists is that one, Jesus. All the promises made to Israel come to him. Land promises, they're his. Which square inch of this earth does Christ not own? Not one square inch. He is king over it all. He is Israel. He's the king of Israel, actually. He is Israel. The only one. So then, what is everyone else? 
Anyone that's in him is his body. All right? We got it? Anyone that's in him is his body. There's no coming back to anything. Christ is it. He's the plan. He's the fulfillment of the plan. The only thing that's left is to come to Christ in faith. That's it. Why? Because he's Israel. Where does he reign? In Zion. Why? Because the king of Israel reigns in Zion. So where do you got to go? Well, you got to go to Israel. The nation? No. Jesus. Why? Because he's Israel. How many times do I have to tell you? This is what Paul is arguing in Ephesians 2 and 3. Read it. He's telling you there is now no differentiator between Jew and Gentile. He has torn down the wall of hostility. Well, it's going to be rebuilt again. No, it's not. We're not coming back to Jewish programs. We're not coming to Christian programs. We're not doing any of this. He's made one man in Israel. You want to call that group of people Israel? You want to call them the church? I don't really care. Jesus is the one that everybody's streaming to. There will never again, ever, 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 be a point where sacrifices are restored. Right? They can build a third temple if they want to. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Christian program. It has absolutely nothing to do with God's eternal purposes. They are fulfilled in Christ, and Christ is the only answer, period. You understand? There will be no salvation outside of Jesus. If God opens the eyes of the nation of Israel and they come streaming to Christ, he is perfectly able to do that. I leave open that maybe Paul is even alluding to in Romans 11 that he might do that and open the eyes of the Jews and they all come to Christ. But the point is, they're going to come to Christ. They're not going to come to a temple and to sacrifice and that's going to be their way into God. You understand? Some of you are going, what on earth are you talking about? And some of you are going, huh, I don't know if I believe that. And I get you. I understand. Some of you are wise to the debate and some of you are not. And that's okay. It's all right. But I think Wednesday night is kind of the night where we can get into some harder stuff, right? The point is that Christ has taken the place of any and everyone who believes as John says, though, anyone who does not believe, the wrath of God remains on him. So our agenda is very clear. To go to the nations, we are heralds. He has restored Christ as a light to the nations, so then what has he made us to be? The salt of the earth. A light to the nations. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are now the light to the nation. Why? Because the light to the nations is Christ and you are his body. So what you are to be is a light to the nations. Now I want you to appraise this statement. Okay? Give me its value. The church is a business. How does that sound in light of what I've just told you? It's the most abominable evaluation of the church 
ever heard, and yet it's all over this nation. There are people in every single church that come in here and praise the name of Christ, and yet will evaluate his body as a business. It's abominable. The church can function without a dollar to its name. Do you understand that? Not one dollar. Budgets, they can help us. They help us to be good stewards of what comes in. We, we want to be able to take an account of the dollars and give an account to where they're spent. I get that. But they're meaningless at determining the success or the worth of a church. Do you know that? There are churches that would put us to shame all over the world that are dirt poor. They sit under trees and they sing and they hear the word preached and they don't have a dollar to their name and they put us to shame in what they do for Christ in their community. Church is not a business. It's the body of Christ. It's meant to extol to the world the worth, the magnitude, the value of Jesus. To tell them about him and to tell them about the freedom and the repent and the forgiveness that they can have in Christ alone. That's what the church is. So just that statement, the church is a business, just wipe it from your vocabulary. It's not true, never has been true. And don't evaluate this church or any other church by the amount of money in its bank account, nor by the amount of people in its pews. That's not how we evaluate the church. Evaluate it this way instead. What's its worship like? What kind of people are repenting of sin? Is sin being called out? And are people repenting of it? Are disciples being made in the congregation? Are people being evangelized outside the church? By the people in the pews. Not necessarily is money going out to other people who are evangelizing for you, but are you going and evangelizing? Evaluate it that way. Questions in the last few minutes. Go ahead, Jeff. Okay, thank you. We'll be sure to pray for her. Any other questions? I'm saying it's potentially possible that someone is saying one of uh, Isaiah's disciples is taking chapters 40 to, to 66 and saying, this is also evidence that the Lord is with you, that he has given you Cyrus who delivered you. So I'm saying that's possible. That's one potential solution to the one calling out the name of the individual who's saved. Not the only Isaiah could have written Cyrus too. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, um, it doesn't change the meaning of Isaiah at all. It doesn't change any New Testament proclamations about what's happening in Isaiah 40 to 66. Um, I mean, whether or not you can say this is Isaiah's pen that writes the name Cyrus, I'm not sure. Um, I would say it's a, I don't mean to burst your bubble or anything like that. Yeah, why is that? I th- look, I think, I think you're perfectly within your right to say Isaiah wrote the name Cyrus. It's in the book of Isaiah. We have no other name um, of any other person that would come by and write the name Cyrus. What I'm saying to you is that it is possible that there is somebody else later on who's one of Isaiah's disciples who's compiling all this and saying, this is evidence that the Lord is with you. First, he disciplines you by sending you into, into Babylon. That would be Isaiah telling you that. And it's also evident that he's with you because he saved you by Cyrus. And you all know that. Now, whether or not that's Isaiah, whether or not that's Isaiah that puts the name Cyrus down, or whether or not it's disciples, I'm not entirely sure. But I would say you're perfectly within your right to say, this is in the book of Isaiah. I don't know of any other name. It's Isaiah that wrote this. And that's fine. I think that's absolutely fine. What I'm arguing against is really the people who say 40 to 66 didn't come from Isaiah. And I'm saying, well, no, 40 to 66 shows unbelievable evidence that Isaiah did write that and was seeing into the future. Whether or not he saw the name Cyrus or not, I don't know. And a possible solution to that is, well, if it was touched by any disciple, it would have been lightly touched by his disciple, like here, where he could have penned the name Cyrus. So, do you see what I'm saying? The argument is not really against people who would say, Isaiah wrote all of this. The argument is against people who would say, he wrote none of it. I mean, to say, that just doesn't bear merit, I think. That's what I'm saying. I hope that's not confusing. If it is, let it fall out of your mind and just say, Isaiah wrote all this. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that. That's all you're going to hear me ever argue, so it doesn't really matter. Other questions? All right, let's pray. We'll lift up Katrina as well, whose father just passed. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for Katrina. We pray for uh, her family, her sisters, as they grieve right now. Um, we ask for your comfort for them, that you would uh, console them. I, I know it's, they've, it's been a long, long road that they've had to go down, and uh, it's been exhausting, and I know that. And um, so in some sense, there's immense grief. In some sense, they've been grieving for a long time now. And there's probably some sense of relief knowing he's not suffering anymore. And so I pray that as all of those emotions come to bear on this individual moment, I pray that you would surround them with the loving arms of the church and, and comfort from people that love them and care for them with text messages, with calls, with, um, with gifts or provisions of various kinds. And we pray that they would receive that gladly and, and would rejoice that you are looking out for them personally. But Father, we lift them up and we pray that you would care for them. We also pray for us as we think about the words that are spoken here and the understanding that what Isaiah is telling us is immense. 
is heavy and it, it brings to bear our responsibility as a church and who we are in, in light of what Christ has done for us. So I pray that you would give us direction as we go. Um, allow us to be truly lights to the world around us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.